It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome into another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis of MLBPipeline.com. We continue to wait for this hot stove season to actually really heat up. It's been kind of ice cold so far. We should be talking about prospects moving in big off-season blockbusters, but... None of that so far, but the winter meeting's uh, about a couple of weeks away, so it will happen. We're going to talk about some intriguing players available for the Rule 5 draft. That's coming up in a couple of weeks at those winter meetings. We're also going to talk about former Braves prospects who are now free on the market, and a few of those guys had a workout for Major League Baseball in the last week. But let's start with one of the, the big stories of this offseason. That's Shohei Otani. Um, it sounds like Friday is the day that the agreement will officially be um, agreed to between Major League Baseball and Japan and the Players Association. A three-week window will start for Otani to figure out what team he's going to play for. And in theory, every team is kind of in play because the money is not big. But let's talk about Otani from a prospect standpoint. Jim, you wrote up the actual, or you've looked into the actual uh, skill set. I know you both have, but but the actual write up for it, Jim. Just break it down in simple terms for us. How good this guy is at a prospect level. I think in a word, uh, the word might be ridiculous. Might be the best way to describe how talented Otani is, because I mean, just from a, a tools breakdown on the twenty to eighty scouting scale, uh, you know, and I ran these by some guys who have scouted him very carefully, and, and I was told you might be light on him. But and that was said. I, so we go 80 fastball, which is top of the scale. 65 slider, 65 splitter. That's well above average. 50 curveball, 50 changeup. Those are you know it's pretty nice when you have a fourth and fifth pitch and they're major league average. And 50 control. So overall, we gave him a, a 70, which would be a, a number one starter as a pitcher. And, and oh by the way, it's 65 power, and that's usable power, not raw power. It's probably 80 raw power. 65 speed, 80 arm, 50 hit, 50 field, although it'll probably be more of a DH because he'll try to rest his arm. As a hitter, which is a 60, you know, and you could probably even argue that could be higher than a 60, but you know, Jonathan and I, we talked about it because we're going to actually, I think he'll be the first player ever to be listed on two different position lists at MLB Pipeline. Uh, when we talked about Otani, he's going to be the number one pitching prospect in the game, and I think we settled on, you know, he'd be the number four outfield prospect in the game. Uh, and it's back to that package, both in the same player. It, it, it is ridiculous. So, Jonathan, I guess that means he's going to be number one overall, right? Is that fair to to assume once he is on a list? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a fairly safe assumption. I mean, we, we have Wait, wait, John, what if Ronald Acuna comes out throwing 95? Then what do we do? <laughs> right. And, and they decide right. to make him a two-way player. Then what do we do? Well, I think if we can if we can add in Estevan Florial's cooking skills, then maybe there would be an argument to move him up to the number one spot. But um, but no, and, and, and all, just because of the 
ridiculous nature of who he is and how good he is on, on both sides, I think he has to be uh, the, the number one prospect. I mean, we have not seen anything like this ever. Um, so uh, you know, that alone, I think, is worthy of that top spot. Of course, he won't be there for long, expected to start the season, obviously, at the major league level, and you quickly use up that prospect eligibility. Um, it's interesting that he comes now because you look back on the last draft, Hunter Green, Brendan McKay, a couple of players developed in this country that would like to also do this two-way player. It, it, we've talked so much about that around the draft time, but Jonathan, I'll stick with you for this. It's, it's interesting you have this guy coming over, and suddenly this is a big storyline that almost feels like eventually this is going to become more prevalent. Yeah, I think it is, it is interesting timing because, you know, Otani, whenever he came over, was going to be a game changer because he's going to get the opportunity, presumably, to, to do it at the highest level. Um, you know, you mentioned Hunter Green. He's just a pitcher now. But Brendan McKay is going to get the chance at least in the short term, you know, in his first full season in the minor leagues, uh, to try to do both. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know that there's going to be this, like, mass movement towards letting two-way guys do, do both things. I think given the amount of money uh, invested in, in draftees and, and things of that nature, I, I don't think there's going to be a ton of guys like that. But I do think that there, you'll start seeing a handful because uh, I think every draft, um, there are a couple, you know, there's always two-way guys, but it's clear that they're good one way or the other. Every so often you do get the Brendan McKay's where's, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's split, or at the very least, some teams like him better one way. You know, I think, Jim, you, you've pointed out with Otani that while I think the vast majority of teams like him as a pitcher better, there are a couple of teams that like him as a hitter better. Uh, so I think you're going to see those guys, even if it's just in the early going, uh, be given a chance to to do both and, and see what happens. And I, I think it's I think it's a really exciting uh, development in scouting and player development. And I think teams are going to have to shift a little bit in terms of how they evaluate players like that. They're going to have to be given you know multiple reports uh, and looks at both ways uh, to make sure that they're doing it the right way. And I think what's going to be interesting is if let's say Otani doesn't succeed and most people think uh, he does, um, then he will obviously, but let's say he doesn't succeed, it, it may close the door because I know there is a lot of thought that, look, it's hard enough to be very good at either and that you might detract from what you can offer if you do both. Um, but th th on the other side, it's also interesting, too, that I think if this was a different situation where Otani was coming over and he wasn't subject to CBA restrictions and he was getting a $200 million contract, you know, again, you know, depending on who would win the rights to, to negotiate with him and how that worked out, you know, he'd still have some leverage. But if the money was a lot bigger, then I think the team could dictate to Otani, look, we're giving you $200 million. We want you to, to pitch or we want you to hit. But because he's going to sign for no more than $3 million, a fraction of what he's worth, you know, and if he doesn't, I guess, like the deal, he could always go back to Japan and he'd be welcome back. You know, he could tell the team. He has more leverage than he would, I think, and I hadn't thought about this until we started podcasting. I mean, he has more leverage to, to, to be able to do both than he would if he was commanding $200 million plus uh, 
you know, under the old CBA. So it'll be very interesting to see what effect this has going forward. Yeah, interesting stuff. You mentioned all the pitches that he has, Jim, and that reminds me immediately of, of another pitcher from Japan in Major League Baseball. That's Yu Darvish, who who I think after taking away a couple of pitches after he joined the Dodgers, still had six in his arsenal. Uh, but how about comparing those two guys? Is there something more to the fact that they just have a bunch of pitches? Yeah, I think they're very similar. Um and you know, it's interesting because I had you know this week in Pipeline Inbox we had we had people asking uh, who who's better, player A or player B, and I had somebody ask me Otani versus Darvish, and, and I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, obviously the, it's an easy comparison to make, but I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. And I think if you're comparing those two guys, Otani now to what Darvish was when he came over, Otani throws harder. I mean, he throws harder than any pitcher ever has in the Japanese league. And I do think that slider and that splitter, I think at their best, they're maybe a little bit better than Darvish. And all that said, Darvish had, you know, maybe he didn't have an 80 fastball, but it was a 70 fastball. And he had, you know, maybe you wouldn't slap 65s on the slider and splitter, although you could have, but they were solid, you know, 60 pitches. They were solid plus pitches. I think his curveball and changeup were a little bit better than Otani's at the same stage. I think his control, if you look at the success they had throwing strikes and avoiding walks in Japan, Darvish's control was superior, and he had a longer track record, and he was injury-free. So I actually hadn't really thought about comparing the two until I got the question, and then I found myself even a little bit surprised. I think just purely as a pitcher, I pro- you know, it's not like Darvish was a soft tosser. I actually would give Darvish a slight edge. The stuff maybe is a hair behind Otani's if you're green it out, but I think he had a better track record and he had better control and he was more durable um, than Otani was. But I, I think they're very comparable. But, you know, obviously if you factor in what they could do in the batter's box, then there's, you know, that blows the comparison away. It's going to be fascinating to see and fascinating just to see which team gets him because it is so wide open and then we'll see what he can do on the field as we move forward. Um, there'll be plenty of cameras on him the, the moment he arrives in this country and we will keep an eye on that. All right. Um, when we were away, the, the Braves, the punishment came down for the Braves. Obviously, they lost a lot of prospects. Um, three of those prospects in the last week had a workout through Major League Baseball. Brandall Mesquita, Antonio Sucre, Angel Rojas. Um, they were all eligible to, to participate in this workout. Jonathan, only three of them did. Um, did have you guys heard why that is? Were the other guys just felt like it wasn't going to benefit them in any way? I, I haven't heard anything definitively. I was a little surprised, actually, that uh, there weren't uh, more of them participating. Now, uh, my con... Real quick, Jonathan, I was going to say, the Baseball yeah. America had a report that multiple sources said that the players are in the middle of their off-season and felt that they hadn't been given enough time to prepare themselves for a showcase, that they weren't in, like, peak baseball condition, and I guess they felt they were better off not attending than showing up in less, you know, not that these guys are sitting around eating Twinkies and getting fat, but, you know, I guess they hadn't faced live pitching or, and just weren't, you know, ready to go. They thought they needed more time. So that apparently is the main reason that most of these guys didn't show up. Right. Well, I think my ton is in Panama, uh, uh, the expectation to to play down there. So scouts can go down there to to see him. So I think I don't know if he was getting himself ready to play there and wasn't you know ready for the quite for the for the showcase slash workout, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but he was was working his way towards 
fighting uh, in, in winter ball in Panama. Obviously, the money that teams would use to spend on these guys, and I know they get an extra $200,000 if they want to sign one of these guys, uh, but it's the same pool that they would be drawing upon uh, to go after Shohei Otani. So are all of these guys going to remain available until after Otani makes his decision because no team wants to spend any more well, of that money? One caveat to that is that if they want to sign these brave, former Braves prospects, they can use their pool money from next year. Okay. So it's not mutually exclusive necessarily. They, they could go after Otani and Maitan simultaneously uh, if, they, if they wanted to, uh, to do so. I, I also think there's a chance if, if this stuff's so confusing. I, I'm, not, I'm not clear when you have to declare which pool it's coming out of. Like if I sign Kevin Maitan, well, they're eligible to sign December 5th, right? I, I think that's correct. Yep. It's like if I sign my ton on December 5th, do I immediately have to declare which pool it is, or can I just make it up when I find out what goes on with Otani? But talking to a team that is very interested in Otani, their feel was, especially because this isn't going to come down to trying to go back and forth and bump the dollars up you know, to you know, $200 million or whatever, because you can't. It's a different situation. This team felt like they knew Otani pretty well. And they weren't saying they were going to get him, but just said they think he's going to be very decisive and they think that he's going to make the decision sooner rather than later. So it's, it's, it's quite possible, if that is correct, that Otani could decide on a team next week and perhaps even before the Braves guys are eligible to sign as well. Very interesting, and, and certainly this Braves situation has thrown an extra curveball into this offseason with, obviously, I mean, these are all low-level guys, um, and obviously the Maiton's the big name, um, but but it certainly adds something, one more thing for teams to think about and, and to look into and, and all of that. Now, they had the private workout with Major League Baseball, and I guess 100 scouts or so were there, but most of these guys have, have been scouted, right, Jonathan? I mean, none of these guys, they were all here playing last season. Am I correct in that? Uh, without looking up everyone's owners, I believe all of them were at least in the, in the Gulf Coast League, somewhere in the Appalachian League. So, yeah. Um, that said, uh, you know, the different scouts uh, saw them. You know, the ones that scouted them as amateurs haven't seen them now in, say, you know, maybe two years. Uh, so, you know, get, getting some of those eyes back on them again gives a fresh perspective uh, as opposed to uh, a pro scout who sweeps through the Appalachian League for a week, uh, you know, to, to sit on the Danville Braves and file a bunch of reports. So they will have all those reports. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the, it's going to be really interesting to see how much money teams are willing to pay for any of these guys. You know, they shouldn't be penalized for – uh, what the organization did, obviously, but you know, once you get to see players in the pro game, it may change your opinion of them from when they were 15 and and ready to sign. Like Kevin Mike Tom's not going to get four plus million dollars uh, for a whole host of reasons, uh, but a guy like Abraham Gutierrez, uh, who was playing really well, uh, might get more than he got. You know, uh, it'll be interesting to see where where all that lands in, in terms of how teams decide to use their, their bonus money. 
Yeah, it'll certainly be interesting. All right, moving on from that, uh, let's talk about Rule 5 players who are available. This isn't the top 10 players that are going to be taken in the Rule 5 draft in a couple of weeks, but, Jonathan, you've come up with a list of interesting names that people will recognize that were not protected by being placed on their team's 40-man rosters. Uh, there's 10 in all. Uh, Mark Appel tops your list, obviously the former number one overall pick. He's one of a slew of guys, though, from that 2013 first round. Yeah, and, and to be fair, he tops my list because it was an alphabetical list. <laughs> um, See? Just, he <laughs> fair enough. Uh, I'm just saying. Uh, I mean, it's one thing. Uh, maybe maybe I'm, I'm just uh, overreactive to people on Twitter pointing, you know, pointing out, like, no one's going to take Mark Appel because this is why. He was on the 40-man roster of the Phillies. They designated him for assignment. No one claimed him, and then they outrighted him. So you know, every other team had the opportunity to claim him and put him on their 40-man uh, without having to spend the $100 uh, in the Rule 5 draft or put him on a 25-man roster. So uh, this is a list of sort of intriguing names. Um, but there were, I think, nine guys from the 2013 first round who are now Rule 5 eligible. Um, that's a lot. Uh, it, you know, it seems like a, like a high amount. Uh, I don't know that any of them get taken. Cole Stewart was the number four overall pick uh, by the Twins and hasn't missed uh, enough bats and hasn't dominated, but did make it up to AAA as, you know, and, and has some sink. Uh, so maybe he could be a ground ball guy of the bullpen. Uh, he might be the guy that has the, the best chance of getting uh, taken. Uh, Nick Schufo is another guy who's a catcher, a really good defender. And catchers always seem to be selected in the Rule 5 draft. They don't often stick. Uh, but a guy who was in double-A and, and can defend, uh, maybe. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the, there are certainly some interesting names, and I, I don't recall ever seeing, you know, that many players from one first round be, be eligible. And most of them, uh, I shouldn't say most of them, you know, the high school guys, this is the first year that they, they're eligible. When you look at, at the list as far as <clears throat> rankings in organizations, Travis Demerit, number 12 with the Braves, he was another one of those guys in 2013. One guy that jumped out to me, Jim, Max Pentecost with the Blue Jays. He's in their top 10. He's number 8. Um, he's currently battling an injury, so that's one factor. Um, and he's had injuries throughout his past that have slowed down his progress to the point where he hasn't really reached up to the, the bigger levels. That said, it's a guy that at one point had a ton of potential, um, is is he a guy that the Blue Jays you could see losing? Not really, because the problem Max Pentecost is, you know, you're right. I mean, he was the 11th overall pick in the 2014 draft, but he's been hurt so much. I mean, he had he had, I want to say, elbow injuries in high school, or he might have signed out of high school. Then he had he's basically had seems like continual shoulder injuries since he got signed as a first round pick. And I want to say he left the Arizona Fall League early because I think the shoulder was flaring up on him again. But the reason I think it would be tough to take him is while, yes, you could get around the Rule 5 rules to some extent by stashing him on the DL for part of the season so you wouldn't have to keep him on your active roster, 
the whole the whole season. I mean, you, you have to keep him up a certain amount, and I cannot remember the exact amount of days. You, you have to be on the active roster, but you could stash him on the DL, and if he doesn't get the certain amount of days, you know, keep him on your roster to begin next year, or 2019 at that point. But the problem is, I mean, he's 24 years old. He's barely He hasn't really played above high class A because he's been hurt so much, and I just don't see how this guy would be ready to, to, to stick at the big league level. And you'd be killing his development by either A, stashing him on your DL, or B, keeping him on your big league club and not playing him. So then at the end of 2018, you've got a 25-year-old guy who's barely played professional baseball above the high class A level and is way behind on at-bats for the typical guy his age, and then what do you do with him? So I, I just I, I think that was more of a a calculated move by the Blue Jays rather than Hey, you know, we don't think this guy's any good. I just, I think it'd be very hard to have faith in him staying healthy, and he's just his development path has been ruined by these continual injuries. All right, well, keep it locked into pipeline because as we get closer to the Rule Five draft, and you guys are talking to more guys about the players that are really being eyed up by other teams, we have much more on not just the intriguing names but the actual names that could go high up in that Rule 5 draft because there's always some interesting ones and there's always guys who are able to contribute in that year when they're up with the big league club. So we will keep talking about that. We'll have more previews here on the podcast as we get closer and when we get, of course, to uh, Orlando, Florida for the winter meetings. One more thing I want to touch on with you guys before we say goodbye for this podcast is a trade that came down today. So hot take on the D-backs and Rays trade for Brad Boxberger. That's right. That's where we are in the hot stove season right now. Brad Boxberger for Curtis Taylor. As Boxberger goes to the D-backs, he will likely be a nice piece in their bullpen. The Rays save some money because Boxberger was eligible for arbitration. And they get Curtis Taylor, a young player who uh, limited action so far, but but was one of you guys want to jump in with uh, with a scouting report of Curtis Taylor? Yeah, I can I can do it just uh, simply because um, it was the Diamondbacks were were my team and he he he's kind of interesting. Um, he you know, fourth rounder in 2016 out of the University of British Columbia, but hadn't pitched a whole lot, so they really took it slow. Um, it didn't start until May. Uh, then was shut down with a shoulder impingement, but he's expected to be fully healthy. Obviously, they must have checked that out before they said okay to the trade. I, I think, you know, even though he was starting in the Midwest League, that was mostly to get him innings. Uh, the, the Diamondback scouting staff really sees him as a reliever. Um, I, I, you know, maybe an eighth inning guy. He's got some some really good uh, sink uh, to to a, a really good fastball. Uh, you know, he's six foot six. Um, you know, so everything throws, throws is, is downhill. He can touch the upper nineties with heavy sinks. So imagine that in, in shorter stints, um, you know, he's got a really good slider. I think if you've shortened him up and put him in the bullpen, you can forget about the change up, uh, which, uh, you know, which was well behind the other two pitches anyway. So uh, if I'm the Rays, that's what I do. I, I put him in the bullpen, see if he can start moving a little more quickly and, and could be a guy who could, uh, maybe be a future setup man at the big league level. All right. One last thing uh, that you mentioned, Jonathan, earlier in the podcast is you mentioned uh, some cooking from Florio. You did some feature <laughs> pieces down in Arizona. Those are now up up on MLBPipeline.com, MLB.com as well. Um, who are the five? I think it's five players you did kind of some off the field featurey pieces with. 
Yeah, it was it was fun. They're sort of like mini documentaries, for lack of a of a, of a better term. And uh, the Esteban Florial, uh, I mentioned the, the cooking. We discovered that he likes to cook. Uh, and he, I mean, we're not messing around. Go and watch the, the video. I mean, he really, this isn't boiling some, some pasta. I mean, he, he made a, a real uh, like Dominican dinner. Uh, his teammates were loving it. Uh, and uh, he's got a good head on his shoulder, that kid. Uh, after that, the, the one that, that just uh, went up today was one with uh, Monty Harrison and Corey Ray of the, of the Brewers. And uh, they, uh, they need their own show. Uh, just huge personalities uh, on display, very genuine. So that was a lot of fun. We also did something on Michael O'Neill of the Rangers and his sort of circuitous path. And he's a nephew of Paul O'Neill. Uh, so we touched on, on that as well. Uh, Tomas Nito, uh, the Mets catcher, who uh, was slated to get married the week after the fall league ended. Uh, he was supposed to be in Puerto Rico. And he and his fiance had to shift gears. Uh, last minute because of the hurricane and, and moved it to Miami. And now I'm forgetting. Oh, Ronald Acuna. How could I forget Who? the best prospect? Who is that? Yeah. Um, and uh, we talked to him. We talked to his father. Uh, we discovered that he is a third-generation professional baseball player. His grandfather was a really good pitcher who blew his arm out at a time you know, when they, they couldn't fix such things. Uh, and his, his dad was playing pro ball up until about seven, eight years ago. Uh, maybe it was nine, but, um, you know, so uh, we, we delved into that uh, with him as well. So it, it was a lot of fun and maybe, you know, a little more insight and an inside look into uh, what these guys are like as opposed to just, you know, their numbers and their tools and their grades. So you can check those out on the website as well. That's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time.